And if you're staying out here uh, with the boring old adults, uh, we can take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, and we're continuing our look again at prophet, priest, and king, the threefold offices of Christ. And we are spending some time looking at the kingly office. And we spent time last week looking at Cain and how Cain was sought by... Even Eve herself thought that, she, that Cain may be the promised curse reverser, but we find very quickly that instead of ruling over sin, sin rules over him. He rises up and seeks to rule over his brother uh, using violence, murdering him. And of course there are... Um, severe consequences for Cain with that. But we also see God's mercy and grace and kindness, even to Cain, in the midst of that. And then we saw uh, last week how this violent um, way of ruling became sort of the modus operandi for humanity. And, And before the flood, God sees the world and He comments on the fact that it is filled with violence. And so what we see when we come to the story of Noah, which is what we're going to look at today, we're seeing an opportunity for dominion reset. God is going to wipe out what He has created. He's going to start over, and we're going to see how that sort of plays its way out. So we're going to be looking at sort of a large area of Scripture this evening. We're probably not going to get through everything uh, this evening, uh, but that's okay. We can come back next week and continue on. Um, looking at this message of dominion reset. But look with me in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter so that we can sort of set the tone for what we're going to be looking at, and then we'll pray and uh, make some comments. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who who I have created on the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt, in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth, 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under, in which there is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the example that we have here of Noah. And we pray, Father, particularly as we see um, the, the particularities of the dominion mandate given even to Noah. Lord, that we would seek to um, find hope, but also to recognize that that hope can never be placed in ourselves or in humanity. It must be found in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you'd work by your spirit within us tonight. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we have this great sort of conclusion at the end or at the the, um, sort of beginning of chapter 6 that God is going to blot out mankind from the face of the earth because its wickedness was great, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. But yet in the midst of such an indication of the depravity of mankind, we see hope amidst that depravity. Now, I I think it's important to note what happens here, particularly in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The violent dominion that is exercised by humanity that we looked at last week, that's referenced in verse 11 and 12 and 13 of chapter 6, it grieves God's heart. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize what sin does how it affects our great God. Now, we have to understand that God does not grieve or is not affected by sin in the same way that we are. He's God, and we we have an understanding that He is immutable, unchanging, that nothing that happens on the face of the earth will affect Him. Yet, He relates to us by speaking of how He Himself is passionate about what he's created and particularly how that passion is driven by what happens when mankind sins god is grieved at the sin of mankind here god is grieved at the sin of any person that walks the face of the earth 
God mourns over our sins and he mourns over the consequences that our sin brings. We see this in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. This is towards the, you know, we have Israel being taken into captivity. We have Israel rebelling and going after other gods. How does that affect God? And he says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So God brings redemption to his people. He saves them. He redeems them. He lifts them up. But how do they return that love? They rebelled against him, and their rebellion brought about what? Grief. Grieving the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. What is remarkable here is to see the reaction of God towards all of humanity here in Genesis chapter 6 and then that same reaction being meted out on his own people who have done the same things that all of humanity did before the flood. Again, notice that it is His Holy Spirit that is grieved by the rebellion of His people. God is grieved when we sin. We see this again with Jesus in Matthew chapter 27, verses 37 through 39. We know this passage well. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. He's heading there to soon go through what we call the Passion Week. And he will enter into Jerusalem as a triumphant king and he will exit Jerusalem as a murdered sovereign. And as Jesus comes there and he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, we have this message of him mourning over Jerusalem's sin. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See or look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an interesting point that Jesus is making here about Jerusalem. As you think about the history of Israel, Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. Um, Under Saul and under David and under Solomon. And so those three men, Saul, David, and Solomon, they were what? Kings. Of Israel. And each one of them had their failures, each one of them had their issues, and they all pointed forward to a day when King Jesus, the Savior, would come and be with them, that there would be a day where he would reign with them in Jerusalem. But here Jesus is there. And throughout the ages, he had sent prophets, he had sent his messengers. And what did Jerusalem do to those messengers and those prophets? They killed them. And so here is Jesus looking out over Jerusalem, the place where he is meant to be king. 
And he is the final prophet. He is the final priest. And he is the final king given to Israel. And what are they going to do? They're going to kill him too. They're going to deliver him over to heathen kings that he would be murdered like a common criminal. And this response leaves them. Notice what he says there. See, your house is left to you desolate. It leaves them without any guidance, without any hope, without any clear leader. And so you can hear the heart of the Savior in these words. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! As He's grieved over their sin. But there's yet one other instance in the life of Christ that we see His mourning over sin clearly seen, and that's at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus comes there, and Lazarus has died, and and he's taken to the tomb. And on his way to the tomb, he looks and he sees Mary weeping, Martha weeping. He sees the Jews that had come with them weeping. And notice what it says about him. He was deeply moved in his spirit and what? Greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have this very short yet very significant verse of the Scripture. What does Jesus do? Jesus wept. He was grieved by sin and in particular the consequence of sin. The wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day they would surely die. And so it is, as Jesus comes here, He is grieved at what sin does. Now, I I wanted to sort of survey that, to point out that your own sin does this same thing to our holy and righteous God. Every sin that you commit grieves His heart. We're not talking the big ones. We're talking the small ones, the insignificant ones in our mind. God is grieved by our rebellion. And so we need to recognize and and determined by God's grace to put off sin entirely because it grieves our great God. Well, this grief that God is brought to because of man's sin, that corruption provokes God to wrath. We see this in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And then notice that that judgment is not simply limited to mankind, is it? I'm going to blot out man and the animals, the creeping things, and the birds of the heavens. Then he makes the statement, I am sorry that I have made them. I regret making them. God's wrath upon humanity is total. There is a totality of His wrath that He is going to bring upon all of creation. 
when it says that he regrets making humanity, we have to keep in mind that God does not regret as we do. He's not a man to change his mind, but yet he is showing the, the severity of the punishment brought upon mankind. So this is not good news, is it? And I think it's important for us to recognize, even here, that before you get to good news, you have to understand the what? The bad news. You have to understand how bad things are. Here's the reality. The, the world of Noah is very much like our world today, is it not? And so there's bad news. In fact, the New Testament has a lot to speak about how God is going to come and bring about judgment again. That Jesus has come the first time to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, but when he comes the second time, he will come to execute justice on the earth. Sin provokes God's wrath. That is the bad news. But it's not all bad news, is it? Because notice what we see in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor with God. What we do is we get to catch a glimpse of gospel hope and actually a glorious it's, it begins here sort of as a seed level, but then as the story continues, we see what God's grace produces in Noah throughout the story. We see, first of all, that God's grace is first seen in Lamech's prophecy. So Lamech was, or Lamech was, was Noah's father. And if you want to just jump back to chapter 5, verse 28, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And he called that son's name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Lamech were 777 years. So there is already, even with Lamech's father and the prophecy he makes, or I'm sorry, with, with Lamech, who was Noah's father, and the prophecy he makes about Noah, there's a hint of hope. Noah is going to provide hope for us. He's going to help us with the ground that has been cursed. Now we know that we see here in verse 8, Noah finds favor in God's eyes. We have to recognize that this grace that is given to Noah, it's given by divine sovereignty. It is not that Noah was somehow better than everybody else and then that God says, I'm going to give you grace. That is the opposite of grace. If we earn grace, it is no longer grace. Paul tells us that. And so we find great hope in this fact that it was not because of the righteous walk of Noah that he receives grace, but purely by God's sovereign choice. Now, this has origins back to Genesis 3.15. Now, I want you to think again in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise that there would be one who would come who would reverse the curse, the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. But then God says here in Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to blot out humanity from the face of the earth. 
doesn't seem to line up, does it? A promise that someone will come and crush the head of the serpent, and yet God is saying he's going to destroy everyone. And then we see the promise made to Noah. This is God being true to his word that he gave way back when Adam and Eve fell into sin. We stand with God determining to bring universal destruction on the earth, not just on humanity, but on every living thing. Yet, God cannot go back on His promise. His grace endures. And so He graces Noah. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that favor that Noah has, what we see, and we see a gospel reality way back in in Genesis that is the same thing today, when we are in when we are captured by sovereign grace, when we are brought to find and to know who Christ is as our Savior, when God's grace is given to us, do we then continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, God forbid. There is a change that occurs. And that's what we see with Noah. Noah evidences this grace. We see this in verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. And the first way Noah evidenced God's grace is he is declared to be righteous. There's something that made Noah different than the world in which he lived. He was not a man who had every intention of the thoughts of his heart's only evil continually. He was not a man of violence. He was different. He pursued and lived righteously. In fact, the writer of Hebrews points out that this righteousness is primarily seen through his act of obedience in building the ark. Look at what we see in Hebrews eleven seven. By what? Faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, by just the act of him obeying and building the ark, what does he end up doing to the world around him? He condemned the world and became an heir of what? The righteousness that comes by faith. It's so important for us to recognize that Noah's righteousness is not something that he earned through his goodness, but rather it was something that he had granted to him by his faith in Jesus Christ. That he looked forward to and trusted in God's grace, and then that was shown in how he lived his life. It says, secondly, at the end of verse 9, that Noah walked with God. Now, in chapter 5, where we have all these genealogies, there's somebody else who is said to walk with God. Who is that? Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. In fact, it's mentioned twice. He was someone who walked with God. He walked with God, and he was not. And so what did God do? He took him. In fact, if, if you look at what's happening to society in the genealogy there, and you see the results of that in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, God was exceedingly gracious to Enoch. He took him out of this corrupt world. 
as he walked with God. But for Noah, he was gracious. Noah walked with God. And yet, God kept him as kept him in the world to give hope to the world. Then we see that Noah, who was a recipient of God's grace, proclaimed grace to the world. We already saw in Hebrews how Noah condemned the world around him by building the ark, that that actual act itself of obedience was an evidence to the world that was going to be destroyed that judgment was coming. The ark was there, and the opportunity for humanity to come and to enter the ark was there. And every single one of humanity, except for Noah and his family, rejected that. And by rejecting the ark, what did they receive? The wrath of God. And so it is that Christ is our ark. And we are given ample opportunity to come and to enter into Him. But if we persist in rejecting Him, we also will face God's wrath. And so this was the message that Noah spoke. In fact, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that as God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who was a herald of what? Righteousness. With seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This herald of righteousness, the term herald, it means preacher. Noah preached to the world around him. He shared the gospel with the world around him. So what can we see here about Noah that becomes an encouragement for us? What is our life to be like? Well, Noah becomes an example for us. Find our declaration of righteousness not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. By trusting in Him by faith as Noah did. That we are called to walk with God. That every day of our life is to be spent in His presence. And then as we walk with God, having our righteousness declared by faith in Christ alone, then what do we do to the world around us? We preach the gospel. We call them to recognize that the bad news, and then to provide the good news to them that's found in hope in Jesus Christ. So, we now see a new dominion forming with Noah. God is going to reset this dominion mandate. Remember, He made man and woman in His image so that they would be able to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. They were created to be sovereigns, little s sovereigns, or vice regents of God's creation. They failed to do that. Adam and Eve failed, Cain failed, and the rest of humanity continued in violence. And so God's going to reset And he has, by sovereign grace, chosen to reset with Noah's family. And so he begins his plan for dominion reset by first giving a covenant. Now, it's interesting here, and there is some debate among 
scholars and theologians about what is being said here, that, that what God says before the flood is actually continued on with at the end of the flood, so that there's only one covenant. But I, I think if we look at what's happening here, God makes two covenants with Noah. Now, we all think of the first covenant as what's the main promise of, or what's the main, when we think of Noah's covenant, what's the main promise that we think of? God covenanting with Noah to do. He puts a rainbow in the sky so that he would show that he would never do what? He's never going to flood the earth again. All right? We think of that as the, as the covenant of Noah. But I think there's a, there's a previous covenant. Notice what he says in this covenant that's given. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make an ark, make a roof for the ark. I'll bring floodwaters upon the earth, he says in verse 17. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. What is that covenant that he will make with Noah? You're going to come into the ark. You're going to take two of everything that flies, everything that creeps, everything that walks into the ark. And you'll do this and you will keep them alive. And then I will spare you from this flood. Now, it may be easy for us to miss this. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2... When God made all of the earth, all the animals, and He says He gives those things to man to what? Rule it. To subdue it. To exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Guess what He's asking Noah to do? The same thing. The covenant includes a dominion mandate for Noah. Notice what he says, verse 19, of every living thing of all flesh, I'm sorry, um, and of every, um, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every short sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Notice that God is again enduing Noah and his family with a dominion mandate. What are they? They're supposed to care for God's creation. They're, they're called to provide for it. To keep them alive. And in, in fact, God even gives further wisdom to Noah in verse 21. Listen, you need to take all sorts of food that's going to be eaten so that you can have food and who else can have food? The animals. So if you see what God is doing here with Noah, he's doing the same thing he did with Adam and Eve. Tend the garden, he told Adam and Eve. Here, keep the animals. God is placing everything else in creation that is going to exist beyond the flood under the care, the guidance, the direction, the rule of Noah. 
And then we see God abiding by His covenant promise. We see that God shuts Noah and his family into the ark. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Seven pairs of the birds of heaven also, the male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord God had commanded you. I think it's important to note here that there is both a focus on God's responsibility in bringing the animals in and Noah's responsibility in taking them in. I meant to mention this previously. But if you notice again, look at verse 19. He says, Of every living thing you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing according to its kind, two of every sort. And then notice what he says, Shall come into you, and then you shall what? Keep them alive. It remi- so just think about for a second what's going on here. How do the animals come into the ark? Who's responsible for bringing them to the ark? Who does that? Does Noah have to go out and go around and rustle them up? No, God brings them. And it reminds me of something else that happens in the garden. Does anyone, anyone think of an of instance with Adam naming the animals? Who brought the animals before Adam to be named? Who did that? God did. And so we see God's sovereign hand providing for the mandate that he's going to put upon him. But then Adam, what was his responsibility? He had to give the names to the animals. What's Noah's responsibility? He's got to keep the animals. He, got, he, he likely, once they got there, got to hustle them into the, into the ark. And so we, we see, again, this mandate that the connections between Adam and Noah are clear here. So God shuts Noah and his family in the ark, and then he blots out creation through flood. He blots out creation through the flood. If we see what is happening here. Noah, his family... And the animals in the ark are saved. Now, it's a terrible thing that happens. God sends rain upon the earth. Noah and his sons and their wives go into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. They bring the animals in with them. And as God had promised, we see in verse 10 of chapter 7, after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of heaven were opened, and water fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and their three sons with them entered the ark. 
they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God has commanded them and the Lord shut him in. Again, notice the, notice the focus on the dominion that Noah is exercising over and over again. He repeats, two of every kind, as God had commanded him. Noah is exercising dominion. Look at verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh, what? Die. All flesh that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. There's a great contrast here. If you look at chapter 6, verse 8, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All of humanity was like that, so what happens to all of humanity? They receive God's wrath. But just as at the end of chapter 6, we see Noah finding favor in the eyes of God, does God's grace give up on Noah? No. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Just as all humanity had gone into wretched sinful activity so all humanity is destroyed but yet the key that forges both of these chapters together is that God was gracious to Noah Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and then we come to verse chapter 8 verse 1 now remember what did God say to Noah I'm going to establish my what my covenant with you And how does chapter 8, verse 1 begin? But God remembered Noah. God remembers His covenant with Noah. What we find is that these 150 days that Noah is on the ark, he was charged with the care of what was the remnant of creation. His family was there and the animals were there. And so for 150 days, he was given the task of keeping them alive in an ark. 
Now, I don't know, I know some of you have had the opportunity to go and see the ark in Kentucky, the, the replica ark that's built there by, uh, by Ken Ham's organization, Answers in Genesis. And I've been there um, two times now. And it is a magnificent building. It shows uh, how this was a possible thing that could have happened. But I'll tell you what, it's air-conditioned. There's bathrooms where you need them. It's nice and clean, nice and airy. It also has, because of building codes, has other things there. Like it, it, and it's not, with all this, it's not rocking back and forth on the ocean. Right? It's a very nice experience. Noah would not have had that kind of experience on the ark. You would have had animals that were mooing and baying and crying. I mean, just think, have you ever heard a goat scream? Right, have you ever seen those videos of screaming goats? Imagine that on the ark. Like, and then it's spooking the cows. And I mean, there's just so many things that could go on there. You'd have to be working practically from night to day to keep them fed. Two of every animal, every kind was on the earth at that time. And forget about the manure. I mean, if you've ever spent any time in a stall or at a, on a farm, it stinks. How'd you like 150 days of that and there's nowhere to go? You're stuck on this ark. And I just bring that up to show that Noah is seeking to exercise this dominion that God has given him in not so perfect circumstances. And yet he does. And as he does this 150 days, God remembers Noah. He remembers all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he makes a wind blow over the earth, and the waters begin to subside. Excuse me. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain were seen. Now, Noah is charged with taking care of these animals. If you notice, he does this wisely. After the rain stops, we see in verse 8, at the end of 40 days, Noah opens a window of the ark, and what does he do? He sends out a raven. I think it's, it's important to note the, that, that Noah is exercising dominion wisely. He says, oh, the rain stopped. Let's open up the door. He doesn't do that. That would have been catastrophic because why? Everything's covered in water. So he sends out a raven, and it goes to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark, and he waited another seven days. And so he does this, sends out birds, warning, are we okay? And finally, he sends out a, a dove, and the dove comes back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and guess what? That dove didn't come back did not return to him anymore. But yet, 
Did Noah even then open the door? Not yet. Look at verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And so Noah went out, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast and every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So what we see is that Noah even though he exercises wisdom and how he exercises dominion on this little, this little boat. And I say little, it's humongous, but in comparison to the entire world, it's little. And that's the, that's the area that God had entrusted him with. He still exercises dominion wisely, yet he waits on the Lord. He doesn't open the door and head out until God says... Now you can leave the ark. This becomes, a, again, a, a focus for us and a, an encouragement for us that as we are called to exercise dominion, to be um, kings and queens before the Lord, we do it seeking His guidance ultimately, looking to His Word to be the thing that guides us. So the ark is opened. Noah, his wife, his kids, and their wives come out, and we have a new dominion on the earth. And next week, we'll pick up here, and we'll look at how this new dominion, God gives the same commands that he gave to Adam and Eve to Noah. And he charges him with exercising dominion on the earth. And we'll see how Noah does. We'll see a change in the way that humanity is interacting with each other, but that change, even though there's some positive with that change, it ultimately ends up to be bad as we look forward to the Tower of Babel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for uh, the truth that we find in it. Thank you for the story of Noah, Lord, and thank you that uh, um, you are gracious that you give favor to your people, Lord. And thank you as Noah shows and, and exhibits that favor in a transformed life. Father, take your word and apply it to us. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.